Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by Germ Death Hand Sanitizer, the only hand sanitizer with 66.6% ethyl alcohol, and it's good for your skin. Yeah, that's right. I'm telling you, a hand sanitizer is good for your skin. I normally don't like using hand sanitizers, but when I got a hold of Germ Death and I used it, my skin actually felt really nice. Uh, it doesn't get all dried out and nasty and, and, and cracked and all that gross stuff. Germ death actually makes my skin feel better because there's other cool stuff in there, some essential oils, some great smells too. My favorite, of course, being black leather. Uh, if you need to get some germ death, visit germdeath.com and visit them at Instagram at germ death. Rewind the Living Dead is also brought to you by Reanimated Records your place for video nasties vhs music vinyl t-shirts cool stuff if you want it it's at reanimatedrecords.com fair warning rewind of the living dead as a review show so spoilers are ahead when australian director james wan and his friend lee wanell graduated from film school they decided to work together on a low-budget horror film after being inspired by the blair wish project Another film titled Pie by Darren Aronofsky convinced them they could self-finance the film and they started coming up with ideas. They decided the cheapest film possible would involve two characters being locked inside of a room together. Wan then pitched the idea about two men being chained on opposite sides of a bathroom with a dead body in the middle as they scrambled to figure out how they both ended up there. It wasn't until months later when Wanell was convinced he might have a brain tumor after experiencing excruciating migraines that he came up with the concept about a character who only had a year or two left to live and he decides to put other people into that same situation with only a few minutes to choose their fate. After making a short film with a scene that would later go on to be used in the full-length movie, they were giving funding and 18 days to shoot it. The end result was the start of a horror franchise that would go on to produce seven direct sequels and a new film called Spiral due out in 2021. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to listen to the tape recorder and try to figure out how we got here as we review the 2004 film Saw. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week we are going to be talking about one of the most uh, famous horror films of the last 20 years, at least. Uh, and especially, and obviously, of course, the start of a massive franchise, Saw, which actually, as I said in the intro, started off as a very low budget film between two. Yeah, you know, these, I wish, you know, these guys who's made, that made the original Saw, they just went on to do nothing. It was kind of disappointing. They didn't oh, really yeah, do a anything. Couple of nobody, yeah, man. they didn't Too do anything. Like, yeah, James Wan, you know, directed freaking Aquaman and, and it's responsible for the Conjuring Universe. Lee Wanell directed my favorite horror film of the past year, Invisible Man. No big deal. You know, two guys who just yeah. went on to do a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, I guess those guys, whatever. And Danny Glover. I totally <laughs> forgot Danny Danny Glover was in this movie. I'm not I even kidding. I watched it. I've seen I've seen Saw. I saw it when it came out and I've seen it since then. I completely forgot he was in the movie too. Uh I'm not lying. I was like, oh Danny Glover, that's a pleasant surprise. 
Yeah, no, hell yeah. No, Damon, listen, I got out my big baggy jeans, my <laughs> Adidas with the shell toes, my puffy jacket. I was back in the 90s, but this isn't the 90s. This is 2004. But it's like it was it was still that era. It's kind of we, we talk about the the dead zone of horror very often. And it kind of exists right after 1999 um, when movie theaters were weren't necessarily putting out the most amazing horror, but every now and then something would stand out. Blair Witch Project was a big one. Uh, I think that was like 99 or or double O. And then Saw came out and Saw was such a big deal and the trailer was such a big deal and going to the movies and having to see how this thing unfolded, whatever it was, was such a big deal. I remember this, is, this was kind of like event film going at the time. Yeah, you can kind of track like in that era of, of horror filmmaking, you can kind of track where things kind of come alive and then go dead again, because you got 96 with scream, which was again, kind of the reinvention of horror at that point, the slasher genre coming back alive, Wes Craven kind of breathing new life into that genre. And then you mentioned the Blair witch project was, you know, kind of the, the beginning of the found footage, you know, the found footage horror film, which again, wasn't the first, but the first one to really go insanely big. And that was such a monstrous movie. And then, you know, you move on and, and you, talking about saw and this was it ended up being it's kind of funny because i know james wan has addressed this in interviews and i know lee wanell has done the same but this was the beginning of the whole quote-unquote torture porn and and they didn't intend on this to become torture porn when they made the first one really that wasn't the intention at all they really didn't intend on actually adding that much gore in this movie at all and then as the series went on saw became kind of like the masterful torture porn series because they you know every every film the story got a little less and less and then the elaborate traps, you know, became the the kind of signature of the Saw movies. But this first one, while it did have those kind of traps and all those kind of things that became so famous in the rest of the Saw franchise, this one was much more grounded in a, in a, in a certain kind of story. You know, this was much more uh, this was much more important for that than it was. You know, who let's see these elaborate traps and how people are you know forced to get out of them or not get out of them, which is what ended up being after Saw Two. And I give credit, Saw Two is also solid. After that. It really became about like let's get the most elaborate traps possible and see how we can murder people uh but this one this one was was really it's kind of like friday the 13th you know this was a wholly different film a wholly different film than the rest of the franchise it was it's kind of like a whodunit meets the world's worst escape room and like that like right away like as i'm as i'm revisiting it and and for those of you who don't know saw at this point it's uh it's right now it's on hbo max you can go see it there if you don't have uh, any other streaming services, uh, HBO Max has got actually a ton of like great, just classic films, and this is among them. Um, it it starts out with these guys that wake up in a room. They don't know who who the the other guy is, and in the middle of the room is a guy shot dead with a, a gunshot wound. It looks like self inflicted to the head, and uh, and and then there's clues that start kind of popping up that are in their pockets and stuff like that, and uh, it, it's. It's a whodunit. It's it's what's it's what exactly is happening here. And I noticed like right away, visual style was huge in this. Now James Wan is known for visual style. Um, that's kind of his thing. Conjuring. Uh, did he do the first uh, Insidious as well? Uh, I think. I think so. he might. I think. I think I, so. 
if only there was an internet device where I could look up things James <laughs> Wan has done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, it, the point is, is that he's, he's an incredibly visual director and right away, and that's why I kind of joked about the nineties earlier is it really felt, it almost felt music video ish. Uh, and I don't even mean that in a bad way, but the nineties were like a great time for music videos. And so there's a, there's massive amounts of visual style, uh, in this movie. It's told kind of both in flashbacks and in this moment here that, that you're dealing with Damon. I didn't realize too, uh, like now I'm, uh, uh, with, with my current, uh, uh, podcast brain, as I look at stuff, I realized like, wow, this movie's working within really tight constraints. It really is sort of a one-room movie with all these little flashbacks to different places. So it turned out this is a, actually a really, really low-budget film. I didn't realize that at the time. Blair Witch, it was, like, really obvious. Oh, of course that's low-budget. Um, this did not come off like a low-budget film when I first watched it. It felt big. It felt it felt like there was a, a world there. And it's all in the storytelling. It's all in the visual style that James Wan puts together in, in the storytelling that Lee Wanell uh, assisted in in screenwriting um could you believe that it was only done for what like 1.2 million or something like that yeah it's kind of crazy and to answer your earlier question insidious funny enough was directed by james wan and written by lee wanell so there, there you, you go. go uh but yeah it, you know it was it really was and, and you know and listen when i first saw this movie a i didn't think it was low budget at all because the the graphics everything the shooting the, the filmmaking everything was great uh, and, you know, I mean, listen, from the very beginning, when you're inside this really grimy, disgusting bathroom, which immediately is like disgusting, puts you in a certain yes. mindset as soon as the film starts. And then and then I got to be honest, they, they got a pretty good cast in this, considering they only had that kind of a budget. I mean, in that in that time to get, you know, Danny Glover, who is a very well-known guy from the Lethal Weapon series, and then a guy like Carrie Elways, who had been around forever, The Princess Bride and all the things he had done, you know, and, and, and he's a you know, pretty established actor, obviously. So Lee Wanell ended up playing the other role of Adam. So he's kind of like, a, he, I'm sure he cut down on the budget by playing the other guy. Uh, but then, you know, Monica Potter is a, is a pretty well-known actress. She played uh, Carrie Elway's wife. And uh, and then, you know, of course, uh, you know, getting Michael Emerson, who who was, you know, a, a star of Lost, you know, getting him in that movie was was a big deal. So it, they had a really good cast in this movie. Uh, and, and, and so immediately, like, I'm like, there's no way this was a small budget movie. I didn't think it was, you know, a huge blockbuster kind of budget. Budget, but I didn't think it was a small budget, but $1.2 million, man, that's nothing. 18 days to shoot this. I mean, that's yeah, and nothing. In 2004. That's like the, there weren't movies coming out on the big screen for 1.2 million. That no. wasn't what low budget films were at that time. Not at all. Not at all. And the visual styling of this movie is so well done. Like it is, man, it puts you in a certain mindset immediately from, like I said, that grimy bathroom with like the big bright uh. Uh, fluorescent lights overhead and they're trapped in there. And then again, the, the griminess of it, man, it really gets to you. Like, I know it sounds like really, really like it's the details. It's the attention to detail of like their dirty feet. I know this sounds really weird, but like to see how like kind of they're stuck in like their feet are like all dirty and grimy. They're covered in dirt and grime and blood and everything else. Like, it just looks disgusting. And like, you know, they're in like a really, really crappy place when they wake up. Like you, you see some movies where and it bugs me to no end. And listen, I, I, there's a lot of shows and TV shows and movies I love, but it's kind of like when you watch a TV show or movie where somebody's supposed to be like trapped on an Island or something, I'm bringing up lost. I just mentioned lost, but like, <laughs> you know, their hair is still perfect and they're wearing makeup. Right. And I'm just like, come on. Like, you know, like I understand that like you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta you know, suspend disbelief a little bit, but geez, can we have, 
have like a little bit more realism here and like when you see this scene open up and this guy you know falls out of a bathtub and the other guy wakes up and they're both chained to these walls with these giant chains on their ankles i mean they're stuck in a really grimy dirty disgusting situation and that sets the stage for the rest of the filmmaking and it really is well done you got to give a shout out to production designer Julie Berghoff. Um, I, I, my dad was a plumber, and so I would I would help him out sometimes, especially around the house. Like we'd go under the house and work on the pipes and all that stuff. Like that, those grimy, deteriorating pipes and plumbing. Um, th- those are things like I saw growing up, and I was like, wow. Like they actually like I'm, I, and I was kind of combing over the background. Like it's weird that you say the same thing because I, I was feeling the same way. I was watching the background they were tied to, and I go, I would fucking hate to wake <laughs> up in this. It's so gross and so grimy. And one of the first things is like uh, the clue is like follow your heart. And uh, and uh, Adam, the, the younger guy in there, uh, sees a heart written in shit on the toilet, and, and he decides – to dig his hand into the bowl itself, I would, I'm, a, I would have gone for the tank first. I would go, I'm not putting my hand in liquid shit. Just, I'm just not gonna do. It. I'm not gonna do it. Like, we'll figure something else out. Of course, it's not in the liquid shit. But then, like that attention to detail, right? So after his hand comes out of liquid shit, nothing was in there. It was in the tank because I'd be right, of course. Um, his hand is like crusted over with like dried shit water for the rest <laughs> of the film. Like yeah. it's little things like that, and like so you're just uncomfortable. From the jump, like just just from the get go, you're like, Ugh, everybody's dirty and covered in filth and definitely getting an infection some way or another. And, you know, th- there's a ticking clock. And that's a that's a great way, by the way, to establish dread is is to put a ticking clock on your main characters. And that's exactly what this this killer does. Jigsaw, the killer, right, which which he has some sort of foggy history with the doctor played by Carrie Ilyus, Elwes, Elways, I believe. Is how it is, Elways. Yeah. I'll never get his name right. They, 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 this serial killer is sort of obsessed with instead of killing you, getting you to fight for your life. That's his thing. He's like, you know what? This world has become like so, so ungrateful for the lives that they have. So I'm going to put you in a scenario where you kind of have to fight your fight your way out and see if you have what it takes to survive. Which I like that. I like that angle totally. Did you get the the seven vibes? I got seven vibes off of this big time, and this is almost about ten years on from seven. I felt like I know they said that their influence was Blair Witch, but to me, I was like, oh, this this is like almost like the the dirty, nasty, like trauma version of seven. It really was. It had that same vibe to it, that kind of, again, the, the the serial killer vibe. It's a mystery, uh, which, again, that's what they set this up to be, a mystery thriller. And one thing I loved about this, especially with the storytelling, and I know I always kind of go to the heart of the storytelling because you know, I'm a writer. That's what I do. So I love a good story. And what I love about this, and, you know, as a horror fan, a lot of times, you know, even if you really like a movie, sometimes you have to kind of understand that, you know, a, a, a plot or a story is not going to be as tight as you want it to be you're gonna find the little things you can pick you know you can you know you can uh, you can you know prick with a with a pinhole and say oh that's a little thin but you know i still like it like you know we we've done that on this show we've talked about that like some of the plot oh, yeah. holes and things like that but what i really loved about this was the the storytelling is so tight and how it all ties together so well like you know again the beginning you don't know anything about these characters they're just two guys waking up locked in the bathroom with nothing with no relation to each other and then as the as the spool starts to unravel you start to understand like the connection between adam and 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 larry you know the doctor 
because he was paid to watch him. And then again, even that, like that ends up being a twist because you find out it was the former cop who paid him to take photos of the doctor. It wasn't Jigsaw. It wasn't like, you know, some, you know, evil machination of this, of this serial killer. It was actually the cop obsessed thinking that Larry was the murderer when he wasn't. And so then you find that ties together. And then you find out, you know, that, that Larry is, is, you know, kind of a, a scummy dude on the side, you know, with his wife and kid and everything. But like the way they tie it all back together and the flashbacks and, and I listen, I be the first to admit, I am a fan of flashbacks. I don't know why I love that kind of intimate storytelling where you kind of find out more about characters. I know it's, I know it's very much a cheap plot point to do that in terms of development and character sometimes i think a lot of directors and a lot of writers rely too much on flashbacks but i feel like when they're done properly and they're done the right way it really adds layers to the story i think again i I keep going back to this i don't know why it's suddenly coming up so much this episode but it's like lost i mean you couldn't get lost without the flashbacks you had to Mm -hmm. have the flashbacks to understand those characters and and to learn those characters because again that's how we find out a, how all these people were connected, but also B, like who they were before they got to this island. Now, that was completely necessary. And I think in this situation, the flashbacks are totally necessary, but they're really well done. And they're, and they're really like, you know, picked and pointed together in a really in a really solid way. From the very beginning, when Larry realizes that he thinks this is the jigsaw killer, something that he recognizes because he had been implicated, knowing that he got implicated to lead all the way to where we're at now was brilliant. I love that. You know, you see the breadcrumbs you see the breadcrumbs getting you know laid out and 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 how it all leads to this moment from his pen his pen light being found at the scene of a crime with his fingerprints and that immediately puts the cops on his trail thinking he's actually jigsaw to go from that all the way to the end where larry is the guy being held captive with this you know, live or die situation with Jigsaw putting him in that you know, evil game. Uh, it, I just loved it. I thought the, the the way the story unfolded and all tied together was so well done. I'm glad you bring this up because I, I did make a very specific note for the style of this film. Now, the style is sort of, I would say, disjointed, manic. Um, you know, there's a lot of like uh, highly stylized editing and transitions and all that stuff. But most importantly, is those flashbacks, and you talk about that. Now, some people will tell you never use flashbacks in your film. That's a sign of laziness wrong. It's, 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 if it's in there for necessity, if it's in there almost as its own character. Now, in, in Saw, you have two guys chained up in a room. Not much is going to be able to happen in terms of character perspective. All you're going to get is what their perspective of the room. That's all you can really do without the flashbacks you don't have a grander perspective for the mystery that is that they are trying to unfold and let's be honest if you're in that situation in a real world situation and you're sitting there with a a guy you don't know across from you you're going to have to jog your memory to try to figure out how you got to this place so having the flashback in there is important i'm actually writing a short right now that a flashback is critical to the main character's movement in the story that that the way they're going to unlock everything is to try to recall a very specific memory that's what these characters are doing they're trying to recall very specific memories to help them in this situation because they are given i mean the bare bones clues from the jigsaw killer to just to try and save their own lives you know that there's little pieces here they do some nice and clever little things like you know uh adam finds something in in the doctor's wallet and uh, and and doesn't tell him about it. Like there's, it, it, it adds a little bit of tension. But ultimately, you do need each of the characters to kind of look back in time to try and 
put everything together. And I, I really dug that. Um, what did you think about the the fact that this was uh, this really stares me for a whodunit film? The cop is not really the main character of this film. Danny Glover is our cop. He's our detective in this film. What did you think about that? I thought that was like that stuck out to me because almost every movie in these scenarios, the main character is the cop trying to figure everything out. And that wasn't the case this time. And I liked it. I loved it. I got to be honest. I loved it because, again, you know, listen, there are going to be, you mentioned Seven, which is another of my favorite all time movies. I mean, that's just an all time classic in and of itself. And that obviously you couldn't have that movie without Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt being the cops. And and there's going to be a a million other examples like that where you have to have the cops be the central characters. But in a story like this, when it's not totally necessary, they play an important role. Make no mistake. You know, absolutely. You know, the characters, you know, Danny Glover and and Ken Lung, who is also another guy from Lost, by the way, another great actor who had a character actor who pops up in a lot of stuff. He's great uh, playing Detective Singh. Uh, those two characters are, are absolutely important to the plot of the movie. You don't get to where you're at without them. But that being said, they're not the central characters and they're not the sleuthing detectives, you know, figuring out the crime. I mean, at the end, you know, the, the one guy gets killed and the other guy, uh, you know, the other guy, you know, has no, like he, he, you know, he doesn't know that he does still to that point, doesn't know who the actual killer is. You know what I mean? Uh, I love that, you know, they play a role, but they're not the main characters. They're not the ones figuring all this out they never really figure it out you know and that's that to me is so brilliant because again you're so used to being able to figure these things out or understanding that by the end the cops are going to figure things out or at least clean up the mess when it's all said and done and none of that happens in this film i mean you're left on a very somber dour note one of the lead characters dies and the other one sawed off his freaking leg i mean there's no there's no nothing that you nothing you should see coming now we can sit here as as cynical horror movies fans and say we saw it coming because we love horror movies and sometimes i would admit i do pick up things before they happen but i loved that this didn't follow any kind of pattern from the cops on to the storytelling onto the ending i, I love that this film didn't follow expectations and, and it made sense why things happened the way they happened and that made this such an original story and, and again i loved that about it subverting the tropes. We've said it time and time again on this podcast. If you want to have something that's engaging, that catches you by surprise, you subvert expectations. And that's exactly what Saw does. And some, I think at some point it was probably about necessity. You know, again, we're, we're talking about a low, low budget film here. Uh, James Wan found himself in the editing room with like less footage than he actually needed. He only shot, he shot the movie in 18 days. I mean, that is like for, for what was a blockbuster film, to shoot a film in 18 days for $1.2 million is nothing short of a miracle. It's amazing that he did it, and he deserves all the success, him and Lee Wanell, for for pulling this thing off. But, you know, they clearly had to be very clever with the footage that they had and 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 they go well look we don't have we don't have time and space to shoot a cop drama so how do we how do we form this together so that it it uh it, you know it it takes people by surprise and it's like well what if the cops just never figure it out and what if instead of on every typical uh, beginning of a horror franchise, you know, in, in part one, the cops figure it out in the end. And then, you know, well, the killer was so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And then there's just a scene at like the morgue or something and a hand moves and, oh, he's still alive. They didn't play that route, right? The cops lose and and the cops never lose in these movies. The cops always get their man. The cops lost 
and the killer walks away like he walks out having completed his job and that I mean, seven kind of does the same thing right yeah. like the cops the cops basically didn't catch him in time he did everything he needed to do and he completes you know his masterpiece and moves on and he moves on to do it again in saw two through five or whatever by the way speaking of actors gotta give a shout out to shawnee smith who actually becomes an important part of the entire franchise she was in one of my favorite comedies who's harry crumb I mean, I like I, I love when I saw her in this film, I was like, oh, hell yeah. It's it's what's her name from who's Harry Crumb. Um, it's funny you mentioned that she's also one of my favorites from a classic late 80s uh, comedy uh, summer school with Mark Harmon. She's yeah, also in that. Yeah. She, oh, that's a great, one of my all time favorites. Yeah, she's great in that, too. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I'm getting off track a little bit. The whole point is just. You know, being clever with what you got is what James Wan and Lee Wanell did. And they and they insisted, insisted on subverting your expectations. And that's what got you through. I mean, I, re I do remember being in the movie theater um, when when Jigsaw starts to move on the on the floor, like he's oh, laying yeah. dead for 90 minutes. And when he starts to move and get up, everybody in there's like, oh, like the <laughs> whole crowd like is like, what the hell? Like nobody saw it coming. Right. Because you wouldn't think. Well, why would there be a dead guy laying? Why would there be a guy just laying there the entire time? Like he, he did it to to get exactly what he needed to get. It was such a like smack in the face. I loved it. There's that was when twists were kind of becoming a thing, and but it, that that one to me just was so super effective because you know they, they make it all seem very real. But I and I was reading this in the trivia. Uh, when when Dr. Gordon takes the gun away from what he believes is a guy who's committed suicide and he opens the chamber to put the bullet in, to put a bullet in Adam, uh, the chamber is completely empty. So there is a little clue in there that yeah. that guy never shot himself. It, you it blink and you'll miss it. But it's oh, yeah. in there, like, like totally super intentional. Well, that's and that's what I said. What I love about this film is that everything makes sense. You know, everything leads to what we get to in the ending. Every, you know, from point A to point B to point C, and I know that sounds so simplistic when I'm breaking it down, but when you're dealing with a mystery, when you're dealing with a murder mystery or, or a horror movie of this kind, tying everything together and having it make sense is not as easy as it seems. I mean, it really is not. I can tell you, like I said, we could pick about plot holes for a lot of great horror films, films that I love. And I would still say that's a plot hole or why did they do that? Didn't really make sense for that character to do that or whatever. Uh, when you get to a film like seven or a film like Saul, the original where it all ties together and it makes sense and it, and it all leads to this just huge moment at the end. Like you said, when he gets up from the floor, Oh my God. Like I remember I was like, what in the hell is going yeah. on? I was so shocked and rewatching it, you know, rewatching it recently to get ready for this podcast, knowing how the ending comes, I'm watching it with a little different eye and I'm just like marveling at, at the brilliance of that. The dead guy in the middle of the room is the key to all of this. They can't reach him. So it's not like they can go over and kick him to see if he's dead or not. Uh, you know, he's laying there motionless for like six hours or ten, eight hours, whatever it ends up being uh, while this whole thing is unfolding. And it's just so utterly brilliant. And then to have it, you know, be him at the end, you know, revealed as the guy and everybody's everybody's 
Um, everybody's motivations in this movie make sense on some level, depending on what you're looking for. For for Dr. Gordon, his family's been kidnapped. He's trying to get back to them while figuring out why he's here in the first place. Adam is a guy who was paid by an ex-cop to follow him, and that ties them together in a weirder way and in a more deeper way, and Adam lies about that throughout the very, you know, half of the movie. He doesn't, he never really confesses it until Larry gets him to confess it when he finds out that, you know, he's like, Adam, you know, Adam's a liar, don't believe anything he says, and that's when it finally comes out. And then, you know, even with Zep, the, the, the orderly in the hospital who cared about John, the very minimal scene where you see John, who ends up being Jigsaw, in the hospital during a flashback from Dr. Gordon, uh, even him, like his motivation isn't that he's like some, you know, sick, twisted guy who got fascinated by John's uh, own, you know, uh, own fascination with uh, life or death. No, he got blackmailed into it just like everybody else. He's in a panic state because he's been told he's been poisoned and he only has so much time to get the yeah. antidote before he dies. So everyone is, everyone is being forced into this game by Jigsaw and everyone reacts in the proper way they should one guy's trying to save his family one guy's just trying to save his own ass and the other guy is trying to stop from being dead from poison i mean it's all so well laid out and and you and you start to understand and you start to see you know the the human condition what what are you willing to do to live even if it means someone else has to die and all these different things that come up in this movie and it's so well plotted out and it all comes together in such a brilliant way and everyone's motivations make sense. So when it all comes down to the ending, you're like, oh man, yes, yes, I get it. I get, it. I get why that guy would saw his freaking leg off to get out of that room. I see why this guy would, would kidnap and, and hold hostage a, a mother and a child because he's been poisoned and told he's going to die in eight hours if he doesn't get this antidote. You understand, you understand the cop who suddenly becomes obsessed with the doctor because he thinks he let the doctor get away with it. And so now he's obsessed with, you know, catching him and then actually getting him, not knowing how close he actually is to the real answer. He just never got there. Oh, that's just so well plotted out. Yeah, you, you really understand why this young photographer named Adam wants to get out of his room. He's got a, a handful of dried liquid shit that he needs to get washed. I mean, you got to get out. You got to get out. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta get out. Come on, man. I got dry shit on my hands. Let me out. Yeah, I need to get out of this room right now. Yeah, that that <laughs> that scene, that scene at the beginning, I was like, oh, oh, uh. <laughs> I would have if I was in Adam's position in that situation, I would have been screaming from the rooftops like minute one. I have shit on my hands. You can get you me can out of here. It's get not me out of here. I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm so desensitized to gore. Like, gore doesn't really I'm not a gore guy. Like, I get it, and I like a lot of films that have gore. Uh, you know, the scene in Day of the Dead, things like that. Like, I like good, I like a good gory scene. But gore yeah. doesn't really get me. I'm never grossed out or like, oh, man, like, it's too bloody or it's too this. Some people really get freaked out by that. Not me. But you put shit in a film, and I'm immediately like, uh, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> that is like, and you—that's the—that's what gets me more than like the blood and the guts. You so you put some shit in a film, and like I gotta touch it, or I gotta see someone touch it. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. oh man, and uh, they don't like shy away from it. It's not like implied. Like yeah. they get a nice, good angle. You know, they get a James Wan angle <laughs> on that bowl with liquid shit in it, and his hand getting around in there. And boy, does it look realistic. Oh god, and it's just like Jesus. Oh. Like, please, let's move on. Yeah. Like, talk about, like, 
a movie and you know like in all seriousness actually this movie's really good at getting under your skin you know it we is. haven't even gotten to like all the multiple elaborate little kills we'll talk about them a little bit uh the way the jigsaw uh killer you know gets people into these situations that could kill them all all of those are skin crawling like 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 cringe inducing moments like I, I that's what i loved about watching that movie was Every little thing, every little device or puzzle or trap that he set was something where I was like, damn, that sucks. Even the way um, Detective Singh dies just look kind of painful. Like he he, he crosses tripwire and, and he triggers like a bunch of shotguns that are over his head. That looked like a real shitty way to go. It just <laughs> did. You know, like granted, he, he dies like rather quickly. But even in that moment, like just everything about the movie, the way it's designed, the way it's shot, the way it's paced – like gives you a, a sense of mania. Like you're kind of in a fever dream. Uh, your hand is covered in shit. Uh, your your <laughs> your wife and kids are are trapped in it with it with a crazy killer. So you think, um, you know, like like everything about this film keeps you on edge, keeps you uh, uh, in a sense in a state of dread, in a state of uh, uh, anxiety. And uh, yeah, the shit on a guy's hand that really bugs me. Well, here's the thing, and you know what's funny is we've talked about this film for about 30 minutes now, and and hardly at any point during our conversation have we even mentioned the traps, which become the signature of the Saw series later on. You know, they, as I said, you know, as this series went on, yeah. it just became about the most elaborate trap possible to put somebody in. And listen, I'll give them credit. There's a couple of these movies that had some really damn creative traps, and I was like, geez, like that's a really like twisted yet like kind of brilliant way to do it, like. I was like, damn, you know, so I'll give credit where credit's due, but I'll be honest, you know, Saw, the original Saw and, and Saw 2, which I think had a phenomenal twist ending as well, and I'm not going to spoil it here because we'll eventually get to that episode down the road, but uh, but the original Saw was so much more than those traps, now, and, and that's, you know, when they talk about the torture porn, and that's what James Wan said, he was never going for that, that wasn't the point of this movie, even though it ended up becoming such a huge part of this franchise, but it's funny, we're 30 minutes into this, and we really haven't even talked about that, because in reality, while those are obviously an important part of what who Jigsaw is and what he eventually becomes in terms of horror, you know, icon status, so to speak, uh, it's not the major part of this movie. The mystery and the element, the character development between Larry and Adam in that room together and then understanding how they got there and, and, and trying to figure out who did this to them really is the central theme of this story. It's not about what's the most elaborate way we can set up somebody to die and they have to survive it. Uh, uh, that's what the later films become about. This one is really more about the mystery. And I, I like that. And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the other Saw films. Listen, I'm not a big, I'm not a huge Saw franchise guy. As I said, love Saw 1. I really enjoyed Saw 2. Saw 2 is really, really good. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this new one coming out, Spiral, the one with Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson, and they're kind of reinventing the franchise, Spiral yeah. from the Book of Saw. Like, I'm excited about that. But I've seen all the other Saw movies, and I'm not sitting there saying they're terrible movies. Some of them are not great. I'll admit that. Uh, you know, but there are a couple in there where there's some creative kills, there's some creative twists in there. I don't mind. They just never live up to the original, and guess what? That's okay, because that's kind of a 
expected norm of having seven sequels of a franchise. You're never going to stand up to the original. You might find a couple that are spattered in there that kind of like, oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good movie or that's a solid scene in a movie or a solid story performance, whatever. Uh, but saw one feels so much separated from the rest of the franchise because those traps, those, those infamous saw traps that become the, the, the center, the center theme of every, almost every other saw movie really aren't really aren't that big of a part of this movie. Uh, not only how about the we didn't get to the trap we barely talked about the traps you know what we barely also talked about the damn doll the jigsaw yeah. doll yeah i we... mean talk, talk about you know talk about iconography and we've talked about it before on this show jason's mask freddie's glove uh the, the the chainsaw from texas chainsaw all that good stuff like jigsaw now is like he permeates in pop culture like oh, in, yeah. in, a, in a very big way like you know you probably know the doll more than you know the films i guarantee more people have seen the doll than they've seen anything past the first movie um that it, it, to me I, I can't think of another time in modern filmmaking where a doll was used to such good effect and it was like and james wan like made it he made the doll himself like he kind of like really just piecemealed it together it's as cheap a doll as you could have put together he made that doll and like the fact that it, it just it talks to people on a on a shitty video, uh, you know, uh, that, that plays back and asks them if they want to play a game, you know, <laughs> and like that's so super effective without being overly, you know, it's not a killer doll that's coming after you and all that <laughs> stuff. It's just sort of like, you know, I think the, the the freakiest thing is when it wheels itself into the room. Right. That was kind of that happens in this movie. I'm not yeah, mistaking that. Right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it did. Yeah, he wheels himself into the room on a little tricycle. That's the creepiest like doll thing. But overall, just the use of the doll to be this uh, this this harbinger for for Jigsaw it was such a cool idea in and of itself. And I hadn't seen it done to effect on such a grand scale. Like it, there's a lot of horror movies that have dolls in them um, that don't to me don't do anything like this. This it's it, this film is so trippy because, again, like you said, Plenty of story to keep you going, to keep you on the hook. So you're just like kind of hooked into the story, but you're also getting the gross out. You're also getting the kills uh, and, and the traps rather. Um, and you then you get you sprinkle in a little bit of uh, uh, this this doll that kind of freaks you out. Then there's the killer himself who's like in some sort of a pig head costume. Oh, like yeah. completely forgot about that. Like I, I remembered at the time, but watching back, I was like, oh yeah, then there's the pig head. Like it's just like they know that whenever the story starts to not 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 slow down, but just kind of lull, they sort of drop in another another little dread note, another little dread, another little dread, a little bit of a little bit of muppet, a little bit of blood a little bit of pig mask like you get just a little bit of everything to keep you on the hook through this entire film that i'm pretty impressed with how well it's held up yeah and I, just to just to kind of play out that i would say in my opinion the three most iconic horror dolls you got chucky who listen i'm sorry i don't mean <laughs> your to favorite like, yeah i don't mean to like you know if you're a chucky fan man more power to you i despise the child's play franchise not my thing sorry just not my thing i think you gotta go with saw the jigsaw thing and then annabelle which is another james wan creation james wan's got a thing for dolls so you got those three and you're right saw became such an iconic part of this franchise uh just that doll i mean every halloween you're gonna see those masks out you're gonna see the dolls out uh it has become a real like i said you mentioned you know for you know jason's mask freddy's glove you know certain things are, are out there and this is absolutely one of them the saw doll has become a huge part of horror, you know, history. And uh and like I said, in 
everything in this movie plays so well. And, and then again, I just, I love the ending. The ending is so good. I think an ending, a lot of times an ending can make or break a film. And I think this film is it, it made better. Not saying it's made because the entire film is, is solid up to this point, but the, the ending is so well done. And the whole twist with, you know, with John getting up from the ground and, and then you realize who he actually was and you're like, oh my God, I did not see this coming. No, if, if you said you saw it coming, you're probably lying because no one saw that coming. He was not even, he was not even a character. He was literally laying in a, in a hospital bed and they mentioned him for two seconds. You have no idea that that guy's the killer. And it was so well done and how he kind of twisted everyone into his universe. Uh, oh, it was just, like I said, well done movie on every level. Uh, I'm just reading over the trades right now, Damon. James Wan announces that uh, a, a a puppet will be the bad guy in Aquaman 2, just so you know. There you go. So see, we yeah, have and it's probably going to be the most iconic bad guy puppet in comic book history, so there you go. <laughs> All right. With that being said, folks, we got to get into our, uh, our categories for tonight, and there's a lot of them to cover with the original Saw movie uh, as we gear up for the, uh, the new sequel of Saw to come out here soon, Spiral, uh, from the Book of Saw, which, as I said, stars Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. And we will, of course, be doing an immediate review of that film after it comes out in theaters uh, in May. So we look forward to that one. Uh, with that being said, let's get into our uh, categories for tonight, Patrick. We're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on Rewind of the Living Dead with Best Performance. So for Saw, what was your best performance? You know, I have to say that um, for a movie that ticks off so many boxes, the performances were probably the one thing that don't necessarily hold up. I'm really glad like Lee Winnell went into directing. His acting isn't necessarily lighting the screen on fire. Um, but there was one standout performance for me and I had to give it to Michael Emerson as Zepp. Uh, he played Ben uh, very famously in Lost. The guy just has something about him that I think is really good. It's, it also for me was seeing uh, 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 Michael in a kind of a different light. I don't normally see him as as an aggressor, you know, and so uh, he, he seems to build his case throughout the film. Like I buy what his character is doing because of his performance. He comes off as desperate but not maniacal and that tracks for what's actually happening in his story until it's revealed to you. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I had to give it to Michael Emerson because I thought he delivered on all the levels and kind of shined above. Yeah, Michael Emerson is phenomenal. I'm such a fan of his. Uh, he does such a great job in everything. I and mean, he, he has got to be one of the most iconic you know, conflicted villains in TV history with his role, you know, on Lost has been, and uh, he's gone on to do a lot of other great things as well, but he is phenomenal in this movie. I would agree. That would probably be honestly my pick as well, but so I don't double up and pick the same person. I'll, I'll give you this, like Carrie Elway, I think he does a good job. He's a very solid actor. I think he does do a bit of overacting in this movie, uh, mm, but, but, but again, you know, like I said, you, you got to play it how you see it, and, and I didn't think his performance is bad, and honestly, I know you kind of took a little sideways shot there at Lee Wanell, <laughs> but for a guy who is not an actor, I thought he did a pretty solid job, you know, especially standing up to a well-established guy in, in, in Carrie Elway's. I thought he did a, a solid job, but my, my pick for best performance is one of the smaller roles, and it's just because it's a very physical role, and it's, and it's a very small part in this movie, but again, I really like what she did and that's Shawnee Smith as Amanda who again goes on yeah. to become a, a very big part of this franchise and she doesn't really have you know lines or anything it's just the physical acting the terrified look the terrified reaction the 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 trauma on her face after they they put her in the police station and she's kind of recounting this horrific story of how she survived Jigsaw she's the one person who actually survived Jigsaw and it's just again 
sometimes those nonverbal roles are the toughest to nail because you got to put a lot of emotion into your face. You got to put a lot of emotion into your reactions. And I thought, again, it's a two, it's a three minute scene, four minute scene, whatever it is. But I thought she did so well with those moments and played it so strong. And she was trembling and she was, you know, uh, since you know, she was, she was terrified, but also, you know, you saw in the after, like when they got through the story, like she was almost in a way gain, like she, she appreciated she, everything, that, everything that Jigsaw wanted to have happen, happened. She appreciated life at that moment, you know? And so that's all done in so many nonverbal ways, but I, I just loved that performance. Yeah. I think she would have been my other pick for sure. That definitely a standout role. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I thought she, did, Smith. thought she did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. All right, uh, let's get into best line. And I got to be honest, the dialogue in this movie is really tight. Uh, it's really good. There's some funny throwaway lines. I love the line where uh, uh, Lee Wanell's character, Adam, says, I don't care if you're in a hotel room in an orgy of 15 hookers. I don't care what you do. <laughs> There's some good throwaway kind of funny <laughs> lines in this movie as well. But uh, again, a lot of iconic lines in this movie and, and some really solid dialogue. So so let's start off with yours. What, what would you consider to be the best line? Set this one up for us. Uh, my best line comes at the 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 end of the film when uh, we, we talked about that amazing twist where uh, Jigsaw turns out to be the guy that's been laying in the middle of the bathroom the entire time. He gets up, he gets out, and really his plan has completely come to fruition and he is going to leave poor Adam in the dark probably to die and uh, and he has these last uh, parting, parting shots uh, which basically spell out what he intended all along. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. But not you. Not anymore. Ah! Ah! Game over. Ah! Ah! Oh, so good. It's Close almost it. like a serious version of Freddy right there. Turns that light off and shuts the door on Adam to die. Oh, it's so yeah. well done. So, And I love that. Now, before I get to my favorite line, I want to make comment of that music that closed out there. We haven't had a chance in a while on the show to talk about a great score this score for this movie and this theme in particular have become very much iconic themes in the history of horror. We talk about, you know, the, the kill, 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 you know, the, the Friday the 13th oh, yeah. that you can think about the nightmare on Elm street theme. You know, that's a very famous one. There's a lot of, you know, obviously Halloween, of course, probably Halloween. the mo most famous, but the Charlie Clouser, who is the, uh, who is a former member of nine inch nails, one of my all time favorite bands. Uh, he wrote the theme to saw and it is so, I didn't know that. Yeah, it is so. Uh, which part? The Nine Inch Nails is my favorite. Or the Charlie Claus. No, well, double that. I didn't know Nine Inch Nails is one of your favorite bands. Uh, that's easily one of the best live performances I've ever been to. But I didn't realize that he was from the the composer was from Nine Inch Nails. That's yeah, super cool. he was in Nine Inch Nails for I think like six years. So yeah, he was in Nine Inch Nails and he wrote this theme. I, I cut out a little clip of it. I got to play it because. As soon as you hear it, you know the movie. And that, that to me, is the sign of a great score. When you can hear a song or a theme from a movie and you know what movie it's from, the composer did their job. And I love this. I love this theme from Saul.
know that. As soon as you hear yeah. it, you know what it's from. You know what it's Man. from. You know what it's from, and you know, like, I want to get on all my techno goth gear and go <laughs> to a rave with my homies because, like, coming out of the 90s, like, into the 2000s, like, I was finally an adult. I'm, like, ready to take on the world, and and, and music from bands like Nine Inch Nails was, was kind of fueling all the piss and vinegar that was boiling under my skin. So, yeah, I got to give it to him for that one. Yeah. Now, my favorite line, I actually shortened it because not because it's not a great line all the way through, only because the parts of the line that really matter to me are at the beginning and the end of the quote. And the reason I did that is because this is a quote from when Amanda is in her bear trap, when they are playing back the scene with her and she gets the message from Saul, from Jigsaw, you know, explaining why she's there. Now, what I cut out was the part where he just explains the, the bear trap, which uh, you know, doesn't, uh, that's not really important to this part of the quote. But the beginning becomes the probably the most iconic line in in all of the Saw movies, so I felt like that had to be played. And I think the message at the end is really important. So here's my favorite line from Saw. Hello, Amanda. You don't know me, but I know you. I want to play a game. I mean, if you hear Saw, how do you not think of, I want to play a game? Yeah, no, you got it. You got to go with that for sure. That's chilling. It's rather chilling, actually. Like when I think about the scenario that that Jigsaw will put you in and to hear his words and it's so it's so simply done right he's not he's not like he's not the uh, that that one Sawyer from Texas Chainsaw 3 who was like like spouting soliloquies and all this <laughs> shit like he just kind of gets right to the to the core of what he wants to do with you and it's it's effectively very chilling and Tobin Bell has such a great voice I know they altered a little bit in the saw clips but he has such a great voice I remember when he popped up when I watched the Sopranos he's in an episode of the Sopranos where they're taking AJ to the military academy and Tobin Bell plays the uh, the admin the admitting the administration like uh, sergeant or, or lieutenant or whatever it is and uh, I was like oh it's saw uh, but he's in that <laughs> and he's a great actor but he does his voice is so iconic iconic man he does such a great job with those voiceovers when he says he's like i want to play a game it's just so what well a great, done what a great gig to kind of become like the guy like you know obviously we talk about you know everyone knows and loves kane hotter in the horror sphere but you know he's under pounds and pounds of makeup same goes with uh robert england and all this like but like you know tobin bell's face if you yeah. see that guy or pinhead same thing like you pinhead's very iconic but you don't really know the guy under the under that. You know Tobin Bell or or another one, another great one. And I can't believe I'm gonna forget his name because I always know his name. Oh, Tony Todd. Like oh, yeah, you know Canada, Tony yeah. Todd walking down the street, and you know Tobin Bell walking down the street as terrible, terrifying bad guys. Yeah, that's awesome. Like how cool is that? I don't know how cool it is for them, but for me, it's like wow. Like I just know you are that bad guy, and Tobin Bell gets to have that. Yeah, he's great. He's so good in these movies. All right. Uh, best scare. There are some good scares in this movie, some good jump scares. And obviously, depending on how uh, terrified you are by gore, or suspense, things like that. As I said, we don't like to you know narrow it down to one particular thing to be scared by. So in this particular version of Saw, Patrick, what was your best scare? There are a, a plethora of scares, definitely, like a, a different different styles. I picked the one that hit closest to home for me because I do have kids is that um, when – 
when um, the little girl, uh, Dr. Gordon's girl, tells her comes to her mom's room. There's a there's a bad guy in my room. No, there's not. It's a very very typical setup. And then, you know, she goes back to bed, and then they come back in later, and uh, they open the door, and there's a just a guy covered in a sheet, like ho- kind of hovering, not hovering literally, but just kind of over her. Uh, over the child, like that's super freaking. I thought, oh. Jesus, if I was in that situation, I would freak the fuck out. Like that's super, super freaky. Yeah, it's so creepy because it's such an iconic kind of child thing. You know, there's there's a monster in my room, and the parents are like, of course there's a monster in your room. Ooh, like it's like that scene from Monster right. Squad when he, when he gets like, there's a monster in my room, and his dad opens a closet, and there's the mummy, but he doesn't see. He's like, ooh, look at that big scary monster. Uh, but then when you see the little girl peek through the closet window and you see the eyeball staring back at her, you're like, oh shit. And then you know, yeah. and then and the oh, it's it's a really effective one. Uh, that's a great one. That that is that is a great scene. My uh my best scare. I. I I've come back. I come back to this quite often lately that sometimes the most obvious scares are my favorite just because they work. You know, sometimes the most obvious scares are obvious because they work. And, and it was funny because one thing we criticized heavily when we talked about, uh, the film, uh, host was some of the kind of like cheap scares and gags that they did in that movie. Uh, try, you know, basically, you know, kind of borrowing from other films and listen, there's nothing wrong with borrowing from other films because that's sure. filmmaking. I mean, that's, you know, people will say Tarantino bites from Scorsese and I think Tarantino is my favorite director ever. You know what I mean? So I don't care. You know, everyone's going to get influenced by everybody else is my point. Uh, but one thing we kind of made fun of a little bit with host was the ending scene with the monster because it was so obvious what was going to happen. But in saw, yes, it's obvious when Adam is flashing his camera, when his lights go out in his house, you know it's coming you absolutely know something is going to come but it's so effective and drawn out because he does it he flashes that camera like seven times and then he looks right at the door with a baseball bat in his hand and you know something is coming at him but the effectiveness of that shot with him using the flash from the camera and that pig the pig mask guy coming at him is so freaking well done and again i think sometimes when you ratchet up that tension to where you know it's coming it is that much better when it actually happens and so again i keep going back to this sometimes the most obvious scares are the best ones and that was my best scare i remember in the theater that scare being particularly effective like because you do know it's coming but you don't know when it's coming and that's the part that's really like screwing with your your anxiety um but this time around when i did watch that scene i thought to myself you know it's like highly presumptive of jigsaw to think that if i cut the power he's definitely gonna use the flash to get around this room i was like really come on Come on, Jigsaw. You really thought that he was going to use the flash? I mean, we, he could have busted out a flashlight. He could have just stepped around in the dark. He just, you know, Jigsaw got lucky in that moment well, that he decided to use the flash. You got to remember, he got him. He, he he had him. He didn't have him trapped, but he had him in his in his dark room developing photos, and and the lights go out. What? As a photographer, what are you most likely to grab out of that moment? I'm not going to pro- flash my film. I've been in the dark room. I'm, I'm going to screw my film up if I'm I start just, doing that. I'm just saying. I think that's that's a that's a. And when you look at his apartment, this, this guy Lob. this this guy doesn't strike me as the guy who's got a mag light hiding under the desk. You know what I mean? Like he grabs what's available. What's like what's great about what I like about that scene though. And let me take this back. This was in 2004. Okay. 
in these days, in this era, somebody would grab their phone and turn on the light. Yeah. That is, you would grab your iPhone and you'd turn on the flashlight. You couldn't do that in 2004. So he had to grab what was closest to him to had light. And I think the, the camera was the obvious choice. No, it definitely was. I'm I'm giving I'm giving everybody shit, but uh, I ultimately, yeah, that was a fun scare. Yeah. All right. Now, best gore, and and again, a lot of these movies you can have one. Now you have great scares. You don't have gore. You can have great gore and not have great scare. This film had both. There was a decent amount of gore, and obviously there were several good scares. So, what was the best gore in uh, in Saw? I actually don't like my pick now that I think about it. Um, I, I picked Detective Singh's head being blown, uh, or it doesn't. You don't even get get to see it blown off. You've seen the aftermath of it kind of blown out a little bit. There's actually tons of different gore I could have picked that was probably better than that. For some reason, I always think gunshot wounds, like if done effectively, like I always usually give them the top award because it, it is a rather disturbing thing because it's probably the most the closest to realistic. But there's tons of other ones. I'm curious what you picked. Well, I mean, listen, again, you know, the most obvious choice is sometimes the best. And, and I have to say the most obvious choice is my favorite in this movie. And that's when Dr. Gordon starts sawing off his own freaking leg. Uh, good. That is so gross and so like visceral because uh, I was watching it with my girlfriend and my girlfriend wasn't really watching it. She kind of was watching out of the side of her eyes. But as soon as he started doing that, she immediately kind of curled up in her blanket. It was like, oh, that's the effect. <laughs> that's the cringy effect because you can feel that kind of like we talked about the dude putting his hand in shit. And you're like, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. There's a visceral feel of like knowing that like how insanely difficult that would be to saw off your own freaking leg with a hacksaw. Uh, and do oh it was just and again you don't see him cutting through bone which I imagine would be a lot harder of a process with a hacksaw than it actually looked like in the movie but that being said just him cutting into the skin the first couple times man if you've ever accidentally cut yourself you know how bad that hurts imagine willingly taking a freaking saw and grinding it across your skin oh it just it, it makes yeah. your skin crawl Yep, that's another one where I remember in the theater going, holy shit, like just what a great little setup, you know what I mean? Like like they show some clean, uh, not clean because they're rather dirty, but they show some some skin and uh, they, they show its usefulness. You know, he's, it's still wrapped, it's still shackled in the chain and all that stuff. And then when you see him lay the uh, the hacksaw into it in the next shot, like it's it feels super effective. It feels like it's really happening and, and they it's said rather it disturbing. And they set it up really well because the very beginning when he finds the hacksaw in the back of the toilet and they can't get it to saw through the, the metal, Dr. Gordon mm -hmm. notes he doesn't want us to saw through the chains. He wants us to saw through our own legs. So he sets it up at the very beginning. So yep. when he does it, you're like, oh, no, 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 he's not going to do it. And then he does it, you know, so it's really well played in. Everything's very well plotted out in this movie. And that comes back from the very beginning. You get it back to where the end where he actually does saw off his own leg. Uh, right. best kill. There was a lot of killing in this movie and, and there were some creative kills and there were some other kills as well. So what was the best kill in this movie? I picked one of the less creative kills, which was Adam killing Zepp. And the re I just loved, it was sort of that moment that like Adam could re release all the tension and rage and, and, and fight for his survival by just smashing the shit out of Zepp with the, uh, with the toilet bowl lid uh, to me, it was just one of those moments. It, most of it happens off camera. You just kind of have you just have the low angle shot on Adam as he's raining down blows on Zepp, uh, which you assume Zepp's lifeless body at that point because he's smashing him with this heavy piece of porcelain. I just I just thought that uh, it was a rather poetic uh, killing. 
Yeah, that was a good one. That was and that was a very visceral killing because that's like kind of like the moment when very. you know he just snaps and it's just over for him. Uh, my best kill was actually your best gore, which was Detective Singh getting his head blown off because. One thing I will admit, and, and, and I, I'm glad they don't do it, in a lot of horror films, you don't really get a lot of guns, you know, and, and that's good because I think obviously that kind of takes away you know, a lot of the intimate nature of horror films when it's just all based around a gun. Uh, it does happen, and you mentioned it. You know, we've talked about Maniac on this show. With the, you know, there's yeah. a great, there's a great gun kill in that movie, and, and Tom Savini's effects are phenomenal in I'd that be the movie. Greatest gun kill, yeah, it might seen. be. So, but there, there, but we gotta admit, gun kills in general are fairly rare in horror. You know what I mean? Like typically, that's not the the mechanism used to kill in horror. And Detective Singh chasing Jigsaw and then tripping that trip wire, and then you just see like four shotguns aimed above him, and you just hear the explosion and him just like you just see him drop to his knees, blood goes everywhere. It's a really effective kill because it's it's literally a trap. It's a, it's a booby trap, and, and he falls yeah. into it, and it's just really effective. So I love that kill. Uh, not because you didn't see it coming necessarily. They literally show you it's going to happen, but it's just like oh no, oh no, and boom. Yeah, uh, it's just it's really well done. Totally oh no kind of kill because <laughs> like you know Detective Singh is hot on his tail. It's like oh he's going to catch him. He's going to catch him. And again, like you're used to movies like this where the cops catch the bad guy, the detectives get their man, and he's so close, like he really is so close, and they they do, they show you in, in plenty of time, he's going to trip over this wire, and he's going to get blown to bits, and oh. you're like, oh no, and, he, <laughs> and nothing stops it, it happens. It it's, happens. It's gut-wrenching. It is, it is. All right, now, we know that in the end, uh, our killer gets a nickname, well, not really in the end, they name it about midway through the movie, they name him as Jigsaw, the Jigsaw Killer, and so that obviously plays a part in the title of the film saw and, and that of course becomes an iconic name for him the jigsaw killer or jigsaw is kind of his name uh, as we know in future films but because jigsaw was a very creative villain we thought what could be other names for the serial killer so what what, what were some of the names you came up with for for the serial killer in this movie yeah, I came up with this category because I thought to myself that the Jigsaw Killer felt felt very 11 o'clock news. It felt like something like – like I felt like we, we've done pieces on here. Like you could have called that guy the Jigsaw Killer. Like it's too generic. So I tried to pick up on some of the stuff in there. So I went with one was the Diorama Killer, which is a joke because at one point they cut to this little diorama of the bathroom scene. So it's clear like Jigsaw was working on a diorama and going, okay, I'm going to put this guy here. So he had to like make a little guy and place him in this corner and he's got little pipes and a little toilet and then he takes another guy and makes him put it over here. He's got the saw and I was like, okay, so there's Diorama Killer. We can do that. You know, uh, Jigsaw crafts all these wonderful uh, uh, traps for people. So I was like, what about the craft master? We can try that. You know, I don't know. It sounds sounds cool. It sounds, I don't know, the medieval or some shit, the craft master. Uh, and then finally, I just uh, I rested on Inspector Gadget because he's got all <laughs> these crazy gadgets and he kills people. Yeah, I like the uh, diorama. It reminded me of the scene from Sein. <laughs> reminded me of the scene from Seinfeld when George thinks the people at the foundation are plotting <laughs> against him, and he builds his own diorama and he makes himself the Power Ranger. And Jerry's like, "Wouldn't you be the Eminem?" Uh, that, that reminded me of that. Uh, okay, so my funnier ones, the ones that I feel like they would probably do on like television news to like name this killer. The first one was 
very generic, but I feel like that's what they would actually name him is the Puzzle Master. I can feel like right. them naming him the Puzzle Master. Like, that would be a very generic, like, jigsaw kind of nickname. The other one, paying homage to uh, a great character played by Mark Hamill in the Flash show, the Trickster. I like the Trickster. I thought ah. that'd be a good one. And then my favorite, this is my, this is the one that, this is my epiphany. This is my one that I was like, you know what? This is the one that would make sense. Okay, this is the one I'm proudest of. The Dying to Live Killer. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. kind of creative. Yeah, the dying to live killer because he's dying to live. So that's more creative than Inspector Gadget. <laughs> the dying to live killer. <laughs> that was my. That was my. That was the one I was proudest of. I like that. It's a good one. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's a lot. As we said, it's so funny. We talk a lot about you know what this franchise became with the traps, and and again, you know, even if you don't like some of the movies, some of the traps are damn creative. Uh, but there were several puzzles, several traps. Uh, that happened in this movie. So this category is called worst puzzle to get stuck in. So uh, Patrick, what is the worst puzzle to get stuck in, in this movie? Honestly, any of them would have been terrible for me. Like I like genuinely, like all of them made me cringe at some point or another, but I had to go with what I called the trap jaw, which is the one that's on, um, uh, what's her name's face, uh, Amanda, Amanda's face uh, that can rip her jaw open. Now that alone to me just is terrifying. It's like, oh man, I got this thing strapped in my mouth. Uh, there's rusty like metal in my mouth and it, and it's going to snap open and just, you know, basically rip my head off. So that's tense all in and of itself. There's this ticking clock that I have to unlock it. And the only way I can unlock it is by ripping open someone else is guts and getting the key. And it turns out in her situation, the guy was still alive. So right as she goes to rip the guts open, his eyes open. She's like, ah, shit. But she does it anyway. She she, dra she drives a knife through his stomach and rips open his intestines and finds that key and gets out just in the nick of time. To me, that was just an absolutely nightmare scenario that I would not want to be in. Yeah, that was bad. And that, I mean, that's kind of the iconic one. And that is when they actually did a short film that helped them get funding for this movie. The 30 minute short film was that, except in this case, it was Lee Wanell playing the character who had the trap jaw on his face. And he's kind of recounting this story to a police officer. And that is literally the scene that ends up being Amanda in the film. So they basically took that short film that they, they made. It's called Saw Point Oh Five, is what they called it. And now that little scene ended up being transported to Saw the movie with a Amanda in the role instead of Lee Wanell. So that's kind of how they got this movie made based around that scene. Uh, so that that's is very effective. iconic. So yes, I would say the trap jaw is definitely, and again, they use the trap jaw again in later films. So that kind of becomes the most iconic, one of the most iconic saw traps, but mine, the one that made me cringe the most, because it's just, I, I just, I know because I've actually been nicked by it before. And so I know how much it hurts is the guy who gets trapped in razor wire. Uh, yeah. when he's got to climb through razor wire to get to the other side before the door closes and traps him down there to die. Uh, I've been nicked by barbed wire and razor wire when I've helped other people put it up in their houses or things like that. Uh, or, you know, building and helping people build things and I've actually gotten nicked by razor wire. Oh, it sucks real, real, real bad. And I yeah. can only imagine what it would feel like to literally climb the razor wire. Uh, oh, oh. And, yeah. I, I, and I had it happen to me as a kid. I was actually, that's what it, that's how it happened. I was helping somebody put up a fence. It was a break in situation, whatever. But I was helping someone put up and they had me put on these special gloves and everything. But I still ended up getting nicked by the razor wire. And I was like, oh my God, that hurts so freaking bad. Uh, yeah. And I'll never forget that experience. And when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, Oh God. Yeah. That, that is skin crawl material. Like oh. that one. I was just like, Oh my 
God, I really suck to be in this one. Yeah, that would be awful. And then they, they had to replay it, too, where you see the guy literally trying to climb through for, oh, like, yeah. four seconds, and you're just like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that one makes my skin crawl every time. All right, so our final category here on Rewind the Living Dead, as we do each and every week here, is it scary? So, Patrick, when you look back at 2004 Saw, is it scary? I mean, uh, no, I'm not scared of Jigsaw. I'm not scared of the Jigsaw killer, even though it's probably closer to reality than a lot of the other stuff that I would deem scary. Um, but it is, it is a freaky movie and we just talked about it, right? Getting stuck in these puzzles makes your skin crawl, putting your hand in a toilet full of liquid shit makes your skin crawl. Uh, just being in a dirty bathroom without your shoes on does make my skin crawl. So that, that is a type of scare. That is a type, that freakiness, that, that cringiness, that goose pimple feeling that you get. That's, that's actually eliciting an actual physical reaction from you. So in that respect, yes, this movie is scary. Yeah, I would have to agree. It absolutely is scary. It's scary on a different level. Like I said, and that's what I, I always like to make sure I point out on the show is that our, you know, when we say, is it scary? Scary can mean a lot of different things. You know, is it going to yeah. be, the, is this the kind of movie that you're going to cover up your head and not be able to sleep afterwards? Probably not. But does it, does it work effectively in terms of how it's trying to scare you in terms of like terrifying you in terms of, uh, in terms of setting up, like you said, the skin crawling scenes, like I said, watching him saw his leg off, I got goosebumps. Watching that guy crawl through razor wire, I got goosebumps. That is the definition of a well-done scary movie. I didn't sit there and I wasn't horrified by it. You know, I wasn't trying to cover my eyes because I couldn't see what was coming. Although there were a couple of good jump scares, as we mentioned, your, you know, your scare with the the guy under the blanket, man, that's a freaky moment. And then, and then again, my my scene with the the pig guy jumping out of the closet, that's an effective jump scare. So they have those as well but i think top to bottom this is a a good scary movie and uh and it works and it still holds up i gotta say you know there's a couple things yeah. that you know timing wise you mean you know we talk about the cell phones things like that that would not be today's era that you know you know things like that that wouldn't wouldn't play into this but for the time 2004 this this film really does hold up it does. It, it's it's a freaky film. It's creative. It's I said it. I said I think I said it before the podcast. It's singular. Like you're not going to see a lot of films that feel like this. Even though I do compare it to Seven, it doesn't play out like Seven at all. Seven plays out in a completely different way. Seven's much more mystery, much more detective focused. This has its own voice to it. Its own its own visual style to it. It's worth checking out if you haven't seen Saw. I mean, I don't know why are you listening to this podcast. Keep listening, but. <laughs> Go out and watch Saw because man, what a trippy, uh, what a trippy moment in film history, in horror film history that uh, that ends up kind of sp spreading this big franchise. But the original film on its own, I think, is head and shoulders above a lot of stuff that comes out. Yeah, and it's again launched two great careers with James Wan and Lee Wanell, who both went on to do incredible things. I mean, we mentioned at the top of the show, but in all seriousness. You know, James Wan went on to create the Conjuring franchise, which is, again, one of the most iconic franchises in recent horror history. I mean, it, I'd be hard-pressed to pick out a better one, honestly, in terms of, like, popularity, in terms of, like, well-known, you know, franchises. Did every Conjuring movie do as well as the others? No. But the Conjuring universe is massive. I mean, that is a massive franchise in horror. Uh, probably, like I said, probably the biggest of the last decade, if I'm being honest. Easily. Uh, and, and then and then you look at Lee Wanell made The Invisible Man and did such a... I just... I, we we, we, we praised that movie, you know, when we did the review yeah. at the end of last year. It's such a great movie, such a well done. And for a, for a Hollywood, you know, not a, it wasn't a big budget movie by any stretch of the imagination, which, again, very much like Saul, where at the, when we talked about Invisible Man, we're like, how in the hell did 
did they do that for that budget? Uh, but, you know, both guys went on to do great, incredible things, and this was kind of their launching point, and you can see it. You can see why this would be such a great launching point for their careers because this is a is a phenomenal movie. It holds up really well. And whether you like this, whether you like all the sequels or not, as I said, I really like Saw 2, and, and we will eventually get to Saw 2 in this movie. I love that movie. That's a really well-done movie, even though it's, it's still very different from this one. Uh, I did like that movie a lot. But whether you like all the Saw movies or not, is, is I'm not going to say it's inconsequential, because it is, because if you're a big Saw fan, you might say, well, I love the original and then the rest sucked. But uh, it went on to create a franchise, and, and there was enough money behind this and popularity behind this that somebody wanted to continue to finance and, and, and give a budget to Saw f- sequels. And that's a big deal, because when you can get... I mean, So we're talking about the eighth sequel of this original movie coming out this year with Chris Rock and, and Samuel L. freaking Jackson in the movie. Uh, you did something right, I guess is my point. You did something right to have that kind of staying power uh, from a movie made in 20, you know, 2004. And you got, you know, it, it's inspiring a guy like Chris Rock, who's a, a, a great creative and a, a comedic genius, right? And we we've, we found that actually... Uh, it's good to go to comedians for their take on horror. You know, we we watched uh, you know Jordan Peele come through with Get Out, uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride with the with the Halloween uh, movie. So I'm excited to see what Chris Rock does. Apparently, he's had a, a bug in him for a while now about uh, about Saw and and his take on what he could do next with it. So I'm excited to see this movie Spiral that's uh, that's coming to theaters very soon here. Be sure to check it out. I mean, I know I'm going to be there opening night or on demand or however I end up seeing it, but I'm definitely going to see it as soon as I can. And we will be reviewing it on this podcast as soon as it releases. So that's uh, stay, right. stay tuned for that as well. All right, folks, we're going to get out of here. Obviously, want to say a big thank you to each and every one of you that tunes in to Rewind of the Living Dead. Make sure you check us out on all of our different podcast platforms. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Amazon Music. You can find us on Stitcher. And if you're ever looking for the podcast, just in general, you can always find it on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. All of the episodes are there under either the horror section or the podcast section. You can find all of our past episodes listed there as well. Please let us know if you have any feedback, movies you want us to review, things you want us to talk about on the show. Please hit us up on Twitter. You can follow me at Damon Martin and you can drop me a note on there and uh, Patrick you are at Director Patrick there you go folks want to say a big thank you to everyone that tunes into this podcast Uh, we will see you for the next review show of Rewind of the Living Dead next week thanks for tuning in we'll see you then peace